My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I'm Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have watched a sci-fi thriller, I'd say, starring Ethan Hawke, Jude Law, Uma Thurman. It is indeed Gattaca. 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 Which is... Why the... Why the... Are you trying to start a mob chair? Like, what's happening? Oh, no, it's just a reference to Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, How they all count Attica. Chan Attica. Yeah. yeah. I got See, there. it doesn't work when I have to explain it to you. Yeah. That's, that's the case for all jokes, I would say. Yes, but we'll get into that. We'll get into talking about it. But first, we're going to talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure. I had a very varied week this week, and overall, a more positive one than negative. But that was not the case with the first movie I watched. I had to finish off the Wishmaster franchise, which I talked about last week. This is the fourth and final of the Wishmaster movies. This is Wishmaster The Prophecy Fulfilled. It is, of course, an evil genie movie directed by Chris Angel, who we discovered last week was in fact not the magician. But it's a separate guy named Chris Angel. It is who couldn't look further from the actual Chris Angel. He's not the Chris Angel made up of birds. No, it is a direct-to-video movie. It was shot back to back with the third one. After a motorcycle accident badly injures her boyfriend Sam, played by Jason Thompson, leaving him in both a wheelchair and a perpetual bad mood. Lisa, played by Tara Spencer Nan, struggles to connect with him. And they're suing the motorcycle company. And their lawyer, Stephen, who's played by Michael Trucco, who I suppose people might recognise him from Battlestar Galactica. He was a regular on the last two seasons of that show. But their lawyer, Stephen, and Lisa, they have a complicated attraction. And he buys her some ancient box online, which is kind of weird, but all right. That's just kind of an odd gift to buy someone when you're trying to, I don't know, woo them away from their boyfriend is some ancient box, but whatever. That's a bizarre courtship. And of course, this ancient box contains the djinn, again, played by John Novak. And he is unleashed into the world. And, and the djinn assumes Stephen's identity, kills him and takes his face. And this time decides to play it on the down low and just pretend to be Stephen and get the, the wishes from her that way rather than put on the scary makeup and be all upfront about how he's evil and he's going to open the gates to hell or whatever. And do, in doing this, he manages to get three wishes from Lisa. That soul thing where he needs to get a thousand and one souls first, that's again ignored. That's only happened in two. But the problem is, is that the third wish is that she wishes she could love him for who he really is, i.e. <laughs> an evil genie. Hmm. Sucked in. And human love is not love unless it is given willingly. There are some nice ideas here, but it doesn't really execute them properly. It's very plotty, as you heard from that extended plot description, but with a ton of gaping narrative holes in it. I liked that the djinn kept quiet this time. It gives us a new dynamic as he tries to solicit wishes from people. Seems like a more effective way of going about it if that's your end goal, you know, to open the gates of hell. People would try and stop you if you told them that on the upfront, I reckon. Oh yeah, totally. you got to be subtle. We get that kind of fox in the hen house dynamic, which is interesting. 
Truco does okay, but he's a little awkward walking the line that he has to. The acting is a universal step down from three, with the exception of Spencer Nan, who does pretty well. That's how much of the movie is given over to Lisa's personal life. This might actually be more of a relationship drama than a horror movie, come to think of it. Lisa and Sam's arcs are rote and fairly predictable. Sam is frustratingly bitter. He's unable to appreciate the fact that his girlfriend loves him despite his paralysis and has stuck around for years despite his awful treatment of her. And the intrusion of the genie Stephen into that only gets so far because of his attitude. The yeah. the It's a whole weird love triangle. The movie goes so far as to suggest that the djinn is getting actual feelings towards Lisa. But it drops that like a hot potato, and I think that's a good thing. I don't trust the movie, and I don't believe that concept either. It's not a good script. There's an opening fake-out that makes you think you're seeing one thing, but you're actually seeing another that is, is kind of clever. But the rest of it is decidedly mediocre, both dialogue-wise and in terms of narrative. As a result of her ignorance, she just doesn't know that the evil genie is there until literally the last five minutes of the movie. Lisa is, a, is the least proactive main character in the series. She's in the dark until very close to the end, after which her actions are reactive rather than the result of her making a choice. It's been one of the effective things about the others that the characters fight to survive. Lisa never seems in danger, and she never has to make those choices, which I think is a negative for the film overall. There's just a general lack of tension or suspense and the wishes are a lot less creative. The focus is way more on the characters and relationships, which is kind of bizarre given the script and the acting. It writes a check that it can't cash. Ditto for the title, The Prophecy Fulfilled. It's a lie. They don't have the budget for the prophecy to be fulfilled. It's mildly diverting, and it's possessing an interesting take that we haven't seen yet, but it well, there's not enough horror to be tense, and the relationship stuff isn't well written or acted enough to make up for it. I kind of question this whole series and its reason for being. It is available for streaming on Tubi if you're still interested and you're in Australia. I next watched The Devil's Advocate, which is a supernatural thriller directed by Taylor Hackford. It's based on the novel by Andrew Niederman. It's about an ambitious young criminal defense attorney named Kevin Lomax. He's played by Keanu Reeves, and he's headhunted by a prestigious New York law firm, managed by the slick and unscrupulous John Milton, played by Al Pacino. As Kevin quickly loses his moral footing, we discover that Milton is the devil himself and that he has sinister designs on both Kevin and his wife, Marianne, who is played by Charlize Theron. This is a creepy, supernaturally infused legal plot boiler that loses its mind in the third act, but in the best way possible. The central conceit's hardly a secret. The movie doesn't explicitly state that Milton is the devil until the last 20 minutes or so, but the trailer makes it clear, and the movie itself isn't hiding anything. I love the premise. I've spoken about that before, how I love the, the premise of the devil coming to Earth in the guise of a human being and having schemes. The the quiet chessboard-like manipulation is accompanied with some Rosemary's Baby stuff for Marianne as she becomes paranoid and Kevin doesn't believe her. They're living in this company building where all of the employees of this law firm, who all appear to be in on, in on it, they all live there as well and everyone's part of it. 
so it adds up into that whole Rosemary's Baby angle of where, you know, everyone in the building but Rosemary's a Satanist and things like that. The movie thinks it's got something to say about vice and temptation, but it's just too histrionic and inelegant to pull it off. While that undermines the thematic work being attempted, it does make things extremely entertaining. Keanu Reeves, who is doing a southern accent, bless him, is doing his best, but he seems, as he often does, overwhelmed. And Charlize Theron turns in an unusually bad performance, due in no small part to the script's poor treatment of her character. On paper, these should be cons, but the end effect is a movie of rising hysteria and performers being ratcheted up to 11 that end up working as brilliant camp. I love this movie. Al Pacino is fantastic. Mm. Al Pacino wanders through the movie gnawing on the scenery in what is perhaps his most batshit performance ever. He can barely contain his glee and he tears through his final scenes like some sort of coked up howler monkey. It, <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. it. It fits the tone of the movie perfectly and it's so fun to watch. It's peak Pacino theatricality and I love it. You should absolutely jean put that whole absentee landlord rant in here yeah who are you carrying all those bricks for anyway god is that it god well i tell you let me give you a little inside information about god god likes to watch he's a prankster think about it he gives man instincts He gives you this extraordinary gift, and then what does he do? I swear, for his own amusement, his own private cosmic gag reel. He sets the rules in opposition. It's the goof of all time. Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste, don't swallow. And while you're jumping from one foot to the next, what is he doing? He's laughing his sick fucking ass off. He's a tight ass. He's a sadist. He's an absentee landlord. Worship that never. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, is that it? Why not? I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. I've nurtured every sensation man has been inspired to have. I cared about what he wanted, and I never judged him. Why? Because I never rejected him. In spite of all his imperfections, I'm a fan of man! I'm a humanist. Maybe the last humanist. Who in their right mind, Kevin, could possibly deny the 20th century was entirely mine? All of it, Kevin! All of it. Mine. I'm peeking, Kevin. It's my time now. Like, the monologues that they give Pacino to do. Oh, fa- they're fantastic. It's good shit, man. Yeah, it's the best part of the whole movie. Like, it gets... Those monologues get right... They hit right at my actor's nerve. Oh, yeah. Like, you want to perform these monologues. 100%. 
The movie does have some genuine merits to it. There's a decent building of atmosphere in the early goings, and the James Newton Howard score makes good use of stuff like church organs. The, the script tries its hardest to chuck in plenty of symbolism as well. The John Milton, the writer of Paradise Lost, same name, you know. New York is frequently compared to Babylon, the biblical city of Babylon, which fell under sin and vice and was destroyed. That's a representation that's actually pretty well handled. But its attempts to show Marianne's tortured psychological descent is kind of grating, and it gives Theron nothing to do but scream loudly and often. The film doesn't have what it takes to properly contend with actual emotion. The finale is bonkers, though. It's legitimately a jump-the-shark moment that is so ridiculous I was kind of in awe. It's the perfect capper to this whole deranged movie, but it kind of comes out of nowhere when you actually find out the scheme of the thing. And it's just this bravura 15-minute scene of Pacino ranting and Keanu Reeves looking kind of like a confused tadpole. It's, it's amazing. That's, that's, I, I can't even describe why that image is in my head, but like, especially the scene where he's screaming and crying in the asylum, I was like, he looks like a tadpole. I don't know what it is, but he looks like a tadpole right now. It's just something visceral mm. to you. It's the, the gaping mouth, I think. <laughs> um, I can't take it seriously the longer it goes on, but the end result is a camp classic with a primo crazy Pacino performance for all of the ages. I next watched I Know What You Did Last Summer, which is a slasher mystery movie directed by Jim Gillespie. Have you guys ever seen this? Yes. Yes. Ages ago. And this is what we were going to be talking about this episode until Lawson decided against it. Well, I just thought that Gattaca had a lot more going on in it that we could get a good discussion out of, which I think having seen both, you could probably agree. Mm. Yeah, I agree. But I Know What You Did Last Summer is very loosely based on the Lois Duncan novel. It is set a year after a group of teenagers accidentally hit a fisherman with their car and they dispose of his body. And they're all estranged now. But they begin to receive threatening messages informing them, I know what you did last summer. To make matters worse, this unseen tormentor also starts stalking them with a fish hook. This is the first of the Scream reactionaries. Uh, Scream was a huge success, and then following out of that, we got stuff like, I suppose the big ones were this, Valentine, Urban Legend. I suppose you could make an argument. There were some smaller ones in there too, like Cherry Falls. But this was the first of the big reactionaries, and it's written by Kevin Williamson, who wrote the Scream movies as well. It plays it much more straight than the Scream movies, and it isn't nearly as energetic as they are, but it makes for a solid, fun slasher mystery. It's shockingly bloodless for a horror film. I'm a little startled at the MA in Australia, R in America rating. There's very little violence comparatively to others of its genre. Yeah, there's like one graphic kill in the whole movie. Which, if if it's the one I think you're referring to, was actually a reshoot. Because they were saying that there wasn't enough violence. (laughs) Uh, The hook up the bottom of the chip. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then one of the only time that that was a reshoot because they the producers complained that the murderer didn't this was a slasher movie and no one actually the the murderer didn't actually kill anyone until like an hour and ten minutes in. So yeah. they added that, even though it kind of makes no sense when you consider the killer's motivation. And there's another one which is I think maybe the only time you really see blood in any large amount of quantities later on that was also a reshoot. 
But the Lois Duncan book is very different. There are no murders in it. It ha- it retains the, the opening, the car crash, and the disposal of the body. But it is much more psychological and much less violent in the book. The tormentor is trying to murder them in the book, but is never successful. Lois Duncan hated what they did to the book, to the story, especially the slasherization of it and the increased body count. Her own 18-year-old daughter was murdered in a case that was never solved years before this happened. It actually caused her to stop writing horror at that time. But it's understandable that she would dislike the slasher genre out of that. Yeah. And to see it, her her work taken and melded onto to that, you know, it's. I can see how that would be disturbing for her. Yeah. Plot-wise, though, beyond, as I said, the opening, there's very little similarities. The victim and the villain are different from the book. They don't even... The characters in the book don't even exist in the movie. And Duncan's credit, I, do, I found this interesting. I don't know whether this was something that she managed to get for herself, but it comes right at the very, very end of the credits. Like, it's the very last thing before copy, copyright information based on the book by Lois Duncan. So I don't know whether she was maybe like, no, I want to, I want my name to come up after everyone else leaves the theatre because I don't want anyone <laughs> to associate it with me if I can help it. But the mystery itself starts strong, but it burns itself out by the end. It doesn't give you the clues to predict who the killer is. It's not necessarily a bad thing. You can't really guess the killer accurately in something like Scream either, just based on the evidence that is presented to you. But it's not nearly as thrilling a reveal. It actually comes off as kind of cheap. And the final set piece is a damp squib that's full of stupid character choices and uninteresting action in a bland environment. Up to that point, though, the mystery element is holding up its end of the bargain. The paranoia that the movie strikes is pretty well done and the broad strokes of the narrative support it ably even if the dialogue is frequently awful the movie revolves around its central characters and their relationship you've got julie who's played by jennifer love hewitt helen played by sarah michelle geller barry played by ryan philippe or philippe i don't i'll just go with philippe that seems to be what my mind wants to say looking at the spelling of it and Ray, who's played by Freddie Prince Jr. Their interplay and guilt fuel the movie. It works pretty well, as familiar as the character types are. The two women are infinitely more interesting than the men. Barry is an aggressive hothead that the movie doesn't spend enough time sketching out. And Ray is a personality-free non-entity. And this strands both Philippe and Prince, who are both perfectly capable actors, who have been much better elsewhere. Julie and Helen are much more charismatic, though. The former is our focal character, and their specific friendship works great because Geller and Hewitt have plenty of chemistry. They're the best performances as well. Hewitt is an endorsable heroine, and Geller is playing a role we no longer expect to see her in as kind of the, you know, the popular girl damsel in distress. Yeah. Uh, this, this movie came out the same year that Buffy started, and of course, after that happened, she became very much associated with the more kick-ass kind of heroines. Yeah, how she would eventually play Daphne in Scooby-Doo. Yeah. It's interesting that um, Joss Whedon, when he was writing the character of Buffy, specifically was writing her as a rebuke to all of those older horror movies where it's the ditzy blonde teenager that is, you know, killed first. And this time it was the... She was going to be, you know, the, the 
totally in control of the situation. And it's kind of ironic that the same year that that show starts, she's Sarah Michelle Gellar is playing the ditzy blonde teenager. But put together, all four of them bounce off of each other well, despite any script shortcomings. They're talented. It's a pretty decent cast, all of whose careers have somewhat fizzled out for different often unquantifiable reasons. It says something that Johnny Galecki is the most prestigious actor here nowadays, and he's only here in sort of a a transitory supporting role. Sarah Michelle Gellar and Freddie Prince Jr. met on this movie, and they're married now, and they're still married. Um, So that's something. That's nice. And he played Fred in Scooby-Doo as well. Wow, that's lovely. Fred and Daphne are together. Yeah. They're married. That makes me happy. You didn't know that. No, I didn't. Hmm. I knew they were dating. I didn't know they, you know, I figured, stayed together. I figured that during Scooby Doo that they were dating because they do have a lot of chemistry. Oh yeah, they've been together for for twenty three years. They got kids. Awesome. You don't see that a lot in Hollywood. Nope. And, uh, I, yeah, because because you got the thing of, and maybe that's why they they haven't done as much work anymore. Like Freddie Prince Jr. especially does a lot of voiceover work, but like. To, to think about it like that seems to be the reason that relationships don't last particularly long in Hollywood is because everyone's got to travel to different parts and it always becomes, you know, flitting around the world. You think of the ones that have really lasted a long period of time, like someone like Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson. Rita yeah. Wilson doesn't exactly appear in a ton of movies and she sort of... It's, it seems like the ones that really last long are the ones where the, the two people are able to stay in the same physical location as much as possible. Yeah. yeah. And like with Alan Rickman and his wife. What few sequences of action the film has are short on suspense. It's all pretty predictable. And Gillespie doesn't do much to infuse the material with any additional tension. His only moments of directorial artistry appear in the very effective opening, which coincidentally is also Williamson's most effective scripting. Like the viewers, the further they get into the movie, the less interested they seem. All in all, this is a perfectly competent but totally unsurprising slasher with a good cast. It's not the best, but it's hardly the worst. And I always appreciate the subgenre, especially as it got more scarce. Slasher is probably my favourite subgenre of horror. My next watch, I still know what you did last summer, which is, have you guys seen that one? Uh, I think so. I've seen bits and pieces of that one. Yeah. Well, it's good that they still know that they didn't forget. It's it's directed by Danny Cannon, and it's set a year after the first film. Julie is taken on a vacation in the Bahamas by her college friend Carla, who's played by Brandy Norwood, who I understand was a singer that was famous at the time. I've never heard of her before this, but... It's the early 2000s. Yeah. So she heads off there along with a couple of other fellow students. They're at this almost deserted resort island. The the radio contest that has been won that sent them there uh, appears to have cheaped out and uh, sent them, like, right on the first day of hurricane season. So it's inaccessible from the mainland other than by a chartered boat. And they are soon attacked by the fishermen with the hook as a ferocious storm batters the island and cuts off all communications with the outside world. Very effective horror setup. This was a quick turnaround. It came out a year after the first film did. It's not as good as the first, but it's about as enjoyable, and it features a great setting. The movie doesn't have an original idea in its head, though. The villain is the same culprit as the first. They're just trying to make him some unkillable Michael Myers figure. None of the menace or interesting characterization of Michael Myers is there, though. 
for a horror franchise, having such a boring villain, his striking outfit notwithstanding, is a real problem. It's also a step down in terms of characters. Julie is still a very effective lead, and Hewitt continues to acquit herself nicely, but the only other surviving character from the first movie, who I will not reveal the identity of, um, just in case anyone actually wants to watch these, they're barely in the thing, like there were scheduling conflicts almost. To replenish the ranks of the soon-to-be-hooked, we get Norwood, who is fine, Mackay Pfeiffer as her boyfriend Tyrell, He's doing his usual brash and somewhat aggressive character that he's very good at moderating to the point where he's entertaining to watch. He, he's Mackay Pfeiffer is called on to do a lot of that same performance in a lot of different things. And Matthew Settle plays Will, a hanger-on to the group who's trying to get with Julie. None of them are fully realised characters, though, and none of the actors possess the same chemistry as the OG crew. Where we get some fun performances is with the hotel staff. Jeffrey Combs is a rude manager. Jennifer Esposito is an overt barkeeper. Bill Cobbs is an elderly voodoo-practicing porter. And an uncredited Jack Black plays an employee who I couldn't really discern the occupation of, but is always high. Yeah, has dreads for some weird reason. These are nice, sharp little turns that make the most of their time on screen. Combs is especially fun, and it's more grist for the mill. It's actually a lot more energetic than the first film in one key way. This is an overt slasher. There is no mystery, and the violence and the mayhem is adjusted accordingly. That's not a value judgment. This is a different movie. It's a faster, more action-oriented movie rather than the Agatha Christie pacing of the first it has a much higher body count much more extended scenes of horror and it's gorier as well once the storm starts it's cat and mouse until the movies end the setting is a spectacular coup for this i love that simple closed circle setup contained space that they can't get out of the resort is real they shot in a real resort and so that lends pretty good production value to it it looks good and it gives a varied environment to play with, extending into the surrounding, I suppose you call it jungle. It's very competently done. On a script level, it's worse, and the main cast isn't as good, but this isn't aiming for the same thing. It's a much more traditional slasher with more modern technology and a bigger budget. It's nothing groundbreaking, and it doesn't ever justify itself narratively, but for fans of the genre, it's fun. Now, I bet you haven't watched I'll Always Know What You Did Last Summer. No. <laughs> I've seen bits and pieces. I've watched the kill count for it. This is directed by Sylvain White. It is about a completely unrelated group of teens who participate in a prank playing on the legend of the fisherman who has now become this this cult urban legend after the events of the first two movies. But this prank goes wrong and one of their number dies. They they it's the fourth of July weekend in their small town. They have a carnival that they're all attending and they decide for funsies for one of them to dress up as the fisherman and pretend to terrorize the carnival and to corner another one of their number on the roof of uh, a building and just to sort of freak people out and I don't know to give people something to talk about I suppose the one that gets cornered skateboards off of the curved roof that he is on radical and they have arranged mattresses to for him to land on except in the interim between them setting up those mattresses and the guy actually skateboarding off of the roof a farmer has come along moved the mattresses so that they so that he could park his tractor there 
This is a tractor with a vertical exhaust pipe, the kind that stretches up into the air. And so when this guy comes off on his skateboard, he is impaled upon that exhaust pipe. Uh, he ended his combo. Mm-hmm. He's not going to get the points he needs. No, he, he, he only collected S, K, and E. No, it just, spell, it just spells Tony Whore. <laughs> he missed the K. Well, this dead guy was the son of the sheriff, and the other friends think that the sheriff will go all Dirty Harry on them, so they just keep quiet and allow everyone to believe that it actually was a real deranged killer that was about the place. So a year later, the usual routine begins. They start to receive these letters. I know what you did last summer, blah, blah, blah. This is more remake than a sequel, but it's competent enough given its budget and its direct-to-video status. The movie plays the same beats as the original, albeit with a higher body count and an opening section that acknowledges the prior movie's existence. The skeleton of the narrative is exactly the same. You know, accidental death, cover-up. One year later, all the friends are estranged as a result of guilt. They get the notes, the killer's toy with them. You get the stabathon on the anniversary of the first death. It hews very, very close to the original's framework. This isn't a creative choice, but they do it well enough. It's a decent pace, and it has a mounting intensity in the attacks. It's meat and potatoes, but it's okay. The only place it hugely diverts is in one particular beat in the finale that is insane and doesn't work at all with the tone that the rest of those movies have struck. I see by your smile that you seem to know what I'm talking about, Harley. Yep. Um, It's a moment from another franchise that is crammed into an I Know What You Did Last Summer movie. I kind of admire the craziness of it, but there's no denying that it's an arse pull with literally no justification or context. Oh yeah, the, there's no reason why it would be the case. Yeah. The characters are the worst in the series. They have no chemistry and no personality. They're all thinly drawn and underdeveloped. The actors are all people you've never heard of. Save Tori DeVito, who is now on Chicago Med, and I checked, is not related to Danny. It's pretty bargain bin casting and they've gotten what they paid for it's cheap and possessing that very 2000s flash cutting where everything's slightly out of focus quick cuts with sound effects in an attempt to disorient you and creep you out but the director has some skill he's done better and more high profile things since he directed that comic book adaptation the losers in 2010 and he directed stomp the yard It's set in Colorado, and it gets some good location photography from all of the hills. It's it's particularly desolate and dimly lit-looking town that has been chosen and then run through obvious filters to look super washed out. Again, very 2000s. But the surroundings themselves give things a lonely tone. There are some obvious budgetary restrictions. There's this frankly hilarious scene where they go to a music festival, and it's this guy in a tent performing to what is clearly just like eight people surrounded (laughs) like in shadow and it's supposed to be like oh well the shadows you just can't see all the people at the back but no it's eight people we can see it's eight people guys that's a theater trick yes he's trying to pull but it it just does not work that's they're just preempting coronavirus music festivals but the narrative of the movie insists that this is a big live musical performance that talent scouts are attending This is just a weird afterthought of a movie that's more remake than sequel, but it fulfills all of the basic criteria required for a low-budget director video slasher movie. Finally for the week, I watched Boogie Nights, 
which is a dramedy directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It chronicles the Los Angeles adult film industry through the late 70s and early 80s through the eyes of a group of pornographic filmmakers, particularly Eddie Adams, alias Dirk Diggler, who's played by Mark Wahlberg, who is a newcomer to the industry. This is a fantastic, sprawling film with a masterful script, a standout cast, and a real attention to detail. It has an admirable frankness and sly humour about its subject matter. It knows it'll probably piss people off, but it doesn't care. I find these stories about the functioning of certain industries and the people in them really compelling. Like When, when you look at like stuff like Billions or Succession, or, or just stuff that sort of is about the industry and the inner workings of an industry and and all of the high-powered game playing. All of the politics. Yeah, all the politics and the power games in it. I find that really interesting. And this particular industry is so pointedly ignored normally that it makes for a a fascinating overview. It's not entirely accurate, apparently, but it's trying to capture a specific time, place, and idea, and it does so brilliantly. It crucially... It crucially doesn't get all judgy about its subject matter. Anderson has empathy for his characters. He has a clear set of eyes when it comes to the industry, and he's unflinchingly honest. It shows the reasons why people might work in in that industry. Even, shock horror gasp, enjoy working in that industry, along with the mundanity of the business angle and the seedier elements of a porn industry that's still in the Wild West stages and during the 70s no less, with the drugs and partying, etc. It's not nearly as well regulated and managed then as it is now. It would make for a great TV show in the vein of one of those, you know, business dramedies like Silicon Valley or House of Lies. I know David Simon did the juice, but again, as we mentioned last week, he's a lot of work. It's a huge and varied cast of characters here with their own subplots and distinct little arcs. It's a long movie. It's over two and a half hours long and it's packed with detail. The overarching commonality is that they're all people who work in a disreputable business and they find kinship with each other as a result of that. They're isolated from the world at large, which looks down on them. The movie gets into a little bit the endless hypocrisy of people who watch porn and then belittle and demean pornographers. And it ties their, these characters together. As I said, the movie has empathy for its characters. It likes its characters. It delves into the very real and complicated emotional problems that can arise from such work with a steady hand, but it always treats its characters with respect. The dialogue is electric, and the way that the script weaves all of these threads together, often juxtaposing different arcs with each other, is brilliant. If I have a criticism, it's that it ends abruptly. It has all of this loose amalgamation of narrative threads. It, It doesn't necessarily make for a particularly clean finale, and parts of it feel rushed, especially after two and a half hours of build-up. Mark Wahlberg is outstanding in this. I'm not a fan. I find his continued success inexplicable. But I finally see why he became a star in the first place. Paul Thomas Anderson knows exactly how to utilize him. It really is just choice casting. It's just the right energy and vibe. Dirk is kind of a happy idiot. 
and Wahlberg's vacuous persona is a perfect fit. But he's also genuinely brilliant in some really quiet and introspective bits of acting, which is a sentence I never thought I'd say about Mark Wahlberg. (laughs) He's backed by an extraordinary supporting cast as well. Julianne Moore, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Heather Graham, Don Cheadle, Alfred Molina, Philip Baker Hall, William H. Macy, John C. Riley. I get William H. Macy and John C. Riley mixed up a bit, so that confused me for a little bit, but I got over it eventually. <laughs> it has a but the the knockout supporting turn is Burt Reynolds. He's just brilliant as this ambitious director who doesn't just want to make pornos, he wants to make a film and he's fighting tooth and claw against the switch to video in the industry. He wants to be a a director. He wants to make motion pictures. Uh it's it's an awesome compelling presence that he strikes. But Reynolds hated the movie. He turned it down multiple times because he looked down on the subject matter, but he finally agreed. He was apparently really difficult to work with on set, and he disowned the movie afterwards. He never saw it in full, and he got all judgy about it. Uh, Made me lose some respect for him, quite frankly. If you're going to make a moralistic stand on the basis that this is a worthless, seamy industry that doesn't deserve any consideration whatsoever fine i don't agree with that but if that's your opinion all the more power to you but don't take the role take the money and then act like you're above it all that's just so hypocritical it is his number one known for on imdb and it's the only oscar nomination he ever got so that's karma i suppose (laughs) well i mean that's weird because wouldn't like uh, smoky and the bandit be his top I would assume. I think more people are watching Boogie Nights nowadays in the age of the internet than Smoking the Bandit. I'm I'm sure that it's on there. Let me just double check here. Oh, it's the one who is most known, but not the top known. Yeah. Number one, Boogie Nights. Number two, Striptease. Number three, Smoky and the Bandit. Number four, Deliverance. You gotta love the irony. <laughs> I love the irony of of it being Boogie Nights and Striptease. Anderson's direction is extraordinary. He has such style and personality. He changes the aspect ratio. He he will sometimes take the point of view of the camera that is being used in a scene. So it will suddenly turn black and white and grainy and sort of go in to to the the old four by three box ratio. He he does these interesting peculiar camera moves. Most pleasing are the long takes where he will move through a party or a a nightclub and it will just be one long continuous shot that goes on for minutes as the camera drifts all around the environment. And you get these little clusters of characters that as, as the camera moves past them, you'll get like little snippets of their conversation. And it does such a great job of orienting you not only within the space, but also with the characters, because this is such a big cast of characters that by, you know, dropping in and just hearing the conversations that they're having with each other just for little beats, it gives you such flavour as to who they are and what they're about. That sort of stuff is super satisfying to watch, but also super satisfying to perform. You get that environmental theatre energy from it. You actually have to be embodying the time, place and character in those moments, picking or else your extras people has to will be, notice. Yeah, pe- picking your extras is incredibly important for something like that. Yeah, you've got to be really precise with the staging, too. Yeah, it, it makes for this just excellent 
audiovisual collage almost. But its use of licensed music is so clever. It uses songs in really idiosyncratic ways that give such energy to the scenes. Jesse's Girl is used in a really tense sequence to extraordinary effect. It helps that it's maybe the best licensed soundtrack I've ever encountered. And again, that might be more as a result of, of my own personal taste in music. But I mean, Jesse's Girl is one of the greatest songs ever. It's one of my favorites. It has Jesse's Girl, Lonely Boy, You Sexy Thing, 99 Love Balloons, <laughs> God Only Knows, Live and Thing. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just a great snapshot of 70s and 80s music. It's a really outstanding movie. I easily recommend it. Uh, it's available for streaming on Netflix and Foxtel now, if anyone is interested. Anyway, that's me done for the week. How about you guys? What have you seen? So, one of the movies that, because John has to watch a lot of movies for a project he's working on, mm-hmm. he's watched a lot of stuff from 2020. Yes, I have. Uh, so, I watched The Hunt. Ah, yes. Yes, I did. I... I did enjoy this. This, this, of course, for context was was the the movie that caused a whole bunch of controversy when the trailer came out. Uh, members of the American right attacked it for um, being, you know, I don't know, politically wrong or, or something. And of course, the studio chickened out and delayed it to now because, of course, everything's better now, right? The political situation's been totally resolved. Well, Lawson. That was also because there were a lot of incidents of gun mass gun violence that were also occurring at that point in time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they figured a movie where a lot of people get shot up, probably not the best yeah. time. It's, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't buy that because there were, like, the Joker still came out last year and people were having that same conversation and, and then it came out and no one cared. So I'm not sure I buy that. As I, I think... Once, once, tr- once Trump explicitly started talking about what a what a horrifying thing that this was, and this this just you know proved that liberals were actually murderous people who were out to get us all. Like, kind of proves the movie right. I mean, that's an extraordinary. I, he doesn't I, understand I, how narratives work. He thinks that he actually met a young boy who lost his family <laughs> all those years back. I I struggle to think of another time that the president of the United States has commented directly on, on a film like that before its release in, in such a way, like, like you can't really overstate how much that must've rattled universal. Yeah. I, it's, it's interesting because this movie does not deserve the controversy. It's the most controversial, uncontroversial film that I've ever watched. It, it has so- some nice little twists in it that sort of keep you on your toes. Like, the first at least 30 minutes is all... I'm not going to spoil it, because it's a really good way of keeping the audience on their toes as to who you're following. And I'll just say that. The main cast is very well done. You've got a very interesting... Ike Barinholtz performance, which I th- I love seeing him in stuff. I do. He's got- a funny, abrasive. He's a funny, abrasive character. I I just think back to his characters from the Nate from Bad Neighbor. Yeah, that that's a fantastic character. Um, <sighs> shit. Who else is in it? You got Hilary Swank, I think. Yes. No. Yeah, I think so. Yes, as Athena, and that's that's a 
fantastic, vicious performance from an actor that I didn't expect it from. It's got the guy who plays Dennis from Always Sunny in Philadelphia, basically playing Dennis from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> Hold on. It's got Emma Roberts for a bit. <laughs> Yes, it does. And, and the way that that turns out is hilarious. You've got, and, well, the main focus is Betty Giplin as Crystal. And she is a fantastic character who gets some really great moments. Like, her entire monologue about the rabbit and the tortoise. The jackrabbit and the tortoise. Is just, it was the moment in the movie where I said out loud, Oh shit, they didn't kidnap a conservative. They kidnapped a leftist. Not a liberal, a leftist. <laughs> they messed up. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting, the political aspect of the film, it doesn't pick a side, necessarily. Everyone in this movie is just using these buzzwords and things to excuse their own failings as people. And I think that is the main point of the movie. Like, the movie would seem confused about its stance if it weren't written by Dam- Damon Lindelof. He's, he's a very uh, savvy guy. Who's been... Who has created explicitly liberal stuff. Like Watchmen. Like Watchmen. And I just get a real kick out of the greatest hunter's man sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. I love I loved that aesthetic. That whole... Battle Royale. I love how there's sort of this little cornucopia in the middle of the field in the opening. It feels very Hunger Games. It feels very Hunger Games. And I love love that little pig. Orwell is the name that the hunters give the pig. And he's dressed up in this little outfit. And I was like, aw, what a little gentleman. Like, there's this one line, like a pig walks out of the forest and a character's like, is that pig wearing a t-shirt? <laughs> it's a movie that has a sense of humor, and it likes playing with your expectations. The final fight is fantastic. Yeah, it's this drawn-out, just beat-down, where it, they they have to take breaks yeah. <laughs> during the fight, because they're like, like, okay, hold on. This, my, the funniest moment is that it's like, no more gloss! <laughs> I, lo- I did like that moment. But yeah, it's... Utterly uncontroversial, but it's a good bit of has, fun. It's a good bit of fun that has enough twists to justify watching it. It's a satire. Yeah. I also watched Guns Akimbo, which is a New Zealand action comedy film directed and written by Jason Lee Howden, who quite controversially, before the film was, you know, released widely got into this entire thing on Twitter about cyberbullying and apparently he was bullying people to stop them from bullying people. It was this whole dumb idiot thing. And targeting bad reviews as well. And targeting bad reviews. Which, that's just dumb. To When you target a bad review and you say, you know mean things about it. It's the whole Gamergate thing. It's like, it shows that you have such thin skin that you're not able to accept criticism. Now, if a review is being really vicious and not giving it you a chance and not trying to play on your 
if it's being if cruel. it's being cruel and not being honest about the film, then you can take umbridge, like, but you don't like go out you... and attack a reviewer. Yeah, like review bombing. It's a completely dishonest practice. Yeah, but all of that aside, this film stars Daniel Radcliffe as Miles Lee Harris, a programmer who has two guns stapled to his hands and is forced to enter the world of Schism, which is an online death sport, while he's getting hunted by Schism's best fighter, Nyx, played by Samara Weaving, an Aussie actor who we saw in Picnic at Hanging Rock and audiences would recognize from The Babysitter. That Netflix wasn't wasn't she also in Ready or Not? She was... She was, yes, in Ready or Not. Still want to see that one. This movie is full to bursting with a delirious amount of style. It's like a video game. There's a particular, like, schism henchman, goon, minion, whatever you want to call him. There's actually a funny minions joke in this movie. Who looks like he's just been snatched out of Borderlands and just thrown into the world. Cell shading, not... The cell shading's not there, though. The greatest strength and weakness of this movie is the style. It has this tendency to comment on cliches and tropes while also stepping into other tangential cliches and tropes. Like, it's walking through a minefield with tropes as the mines. Like, it steps over one, but steps onto another one completely by accident. And, yeah, it... It's it's really good. The style, the cinematography, the video game aesthetic, the Suicide Squad-esque graphics that show up, the absolutely stellar performance from Samoa Weaving, who plays this criminally insane manhunter, basically, who is just, like, cruel, vicious, ha- has a mouth on her, and just exudes fuck-you energy. And it's... A joyous performance that Samara Weaving just disappears into. This is also the source of that the picture that's been going around the internet for pretty much forever now of Daniel Radcliffe in a bathrobe with like monster feet, like fluffy slippers, slippers, sl- fluffy slippers with staples attached to his hands, yeah. scraggly beard, just like crazy yeah. posing there. And Daniel Radcliffe is absolutely brilliant in this. He really is. His American accent, he doesn't slip. He's not he, for a second. He's, made, he's surprisingly good at accent work. He's made some very canny choices since Harry he Potter has. ended. Like he's been intentionally taking stuff to try and move him as far, not to distance himself from the role, but to like prove to people that he can be more than Harry Potter. Yeah. Like horns. And he has horns, proved that. Swiss Army Man, Miracle Workers. Oh, yeah. in black. Mm. He, he has absolutely... He's pulled a Robert Pattinson in my eyes. But less intense. Mm. Less arty. I still haven't seen that neo-Nazi less arty. film. He's less arty. Less arty, but he's he's able to go into these sort of like, punky Robert Pattinson films. would not have been in Swiss Army Man or Guns Kimbo. No. I don't know. Robert Pattinson's a weird guy. No, I, but I think he could have been more, convinced. Pattinson's more into the... Like the the Lighthouse, like Robert Eggers' stuff, historical yeah. drama. His, his, yeah. his, his choices strike me as like being sort of awards baity kind of choices, whereas um, whereas 
Radcliffe is yeah. just like, I'll do whatever. Radcliffe is like taking really interesting, weird stuff. Yeah. And he's such a funny oh, he, comedic actor. Yeah, he's such a funny presence in this movie because imagine if you woke up, you had two guns stapled to your hands, and you got thrown into this world of, like, a death sport, basically. That's exactly who he is. And it doesn't shy away from showing how panicked and scared he is. And it, it just has a fantastic energy to it. But, again, that energy is also, at points, its greatest weakness. For me, this film gets two thumbs up that have been drilled and stapled to a pair of guns and forced into a blood sport. Yeah. I've also watched The Gentleman. Yes. Which you asked me to watch. Yes. It, it's a Guy Ritchie film where he returns to the style that made his name it's in the first place. Still my number one movie of the year. Yeah. I I agree. I agree if... It's only tenuous because of David Copperfield. Because that was just that, charming. They're sort of both on the same pl- space for me. It follows drug kingpin and just mean person, Mikey Pearson, played by Matthew McConaughey. And the story is told through the words of scummy ambulance chaser Fletcher, played by I, who I, the person who I think did the best performance in this entire film, the magnificent Hugh Grant. It's so not a who, Hugh Grant performance, and that's what's so great about yeah. it. Like, it's unrecognisable. Is, it is it closer to his Paddington 2 character? It is. He is... He's reviving his career by picking just fantastic characters he's, he, and fantastic choices. He segued like because because he was Hugh Grant for so long. He was the romantic yeah. comedy guy. He was, but now that he's reached middle age and they're not looking at him to headline romantic comedies anymore, he segued so brilliantly into the supporting character actor kind of phase of his career. He's done such good work recently. Hold on, I just have to do a little bit of research to make sure this joke that I'm about to say is actually true. Just give me a moment. I mean, he did that A Very English Scandal for the BBC a few years back. He's doing an HBO miniseries with Nicole Kidman doing the called The Undoing. Mm. He was really good at Paddington too. Yeah. But like, the stuff that he like playing a cannibal in Cloud Atlas or... Yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't go on for nearly enough time. Yeah. That was perhaps the start of his hard pivot. <laughs> like, like, I know that... You know, Hugh, Hugh Grant, he almost became a walking parody of himself by the end of there. But you have to go back to, like, 2009 for Did You Hear About the Morgans for the last, like, Hugh Grant, stereotypical Hugh Grant movie that he did, you know? It's kind of like a... Who's the guy who plays uh, Harry and the Kingsman? Colin Firth. Colin Firth. Yeah. He's kind of like Colin Firth in that regard. So much better than Colin, Colin Firth. Second. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Jesus, Lawson. <laughs> Uh, it's it's like the moment after Hugh Grant was arrested with a sex worker in 1995. That was sort of the moment that he decided, you know what, I'm gonna... A man can change his stars. I'm not sure that's true, though, because then he just went and continued making the same kind of movies for the next 15 years. No, but that's that was the, that was the moment that sort of proved that, oh, this guy's got a bit of an edge to him. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. Like, like the... the the this guy, like a... you could conceivably see him in one of these films, I guess. Yeah. The movie's also got Colin Farrell. Oh, yeah. I love seeing him when I love seeing up. him in things. He plays the coach. And <laughs> he's 
he sort of gets dragged, kicking and screaming almost, into people's bullshit in this film. <laughs> but he ends up committing some very, very terrible things. He, he commits, like, a sin to film. And he doesn't even seem happy that he's done it. Um, there are no heroes in this film. Every character is a piece of shit. Every single character. And that is such a fantastic aesthetic to go towards. It's, it's kind of like a, like, in Bruges. It's, it's an in Bruges kind of fi- film. And it's so well plotted and so well put together. It's like a masterclass in how to tell a f- story like this. It, it has such a love of filmmaking. Like, there's that entire scene where Fletcher is starting to tell the story of Mikey to Charlie Hunnam's character, and he says something along the lines of, now, the aspect ratio change... It's like, he talks about aspect ratios, yeah. and he says... Because he wants to, like, sell it as a film script. He, he wants to sell... He, he has actually yeah. got a script written that he slaps yeah. down in front of this guy. And he keeps, talk- and it's like, he keeps giving, like, a, like, uh, like... Yeah. Set directions, stage directions, as he continues yeah. telling the story in retrospect. And he says, Th- this, but this isn't on the small screen. No, this is proper two th- 235 <laughs> aspect ratio. This is a film. You see, you see why... I, you see why we want you to yeah. see this movie. You see why no, I, I said will. so much, John, that, you know, you guys need to see this because this is your kind of movie. It yeah. is. And it's it's got such a viciously witty script. The dialogue has so many c words in it that it ends up just bleeding into the background. Like, it becomes set dressing. L- like I said, in the scene <laughs> that I was able to just like look at when yeah. I was making my lunch, because uh, I had other stuff to do when he was watching it. It was it was a very in Bruges sort of oh yeah dialogue piece. Yeah, it um, it does sort of brush up against a little bit of, you know, stereotyping of certain characters and stuff, but all of the characters are well-written enough that it doesn't end up being offensive. It's just, this is the way these people are. It's not the filmmakers making a judgment call. But it's also the way that the scummy prick proposing the story... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's the way that Fletcher sees these people. So it's not like it's not like Guy Ritchie is saying these disparaging things because he believes them. But this like, is the way these people speak. And then at the end of the movie, you get that great beat where after he's oh, yeah. after he's escaped, Hugh Grant goes to sell the script <laughs> to the studio that made the yeah. gentleman the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. I love it. That was fantastic. That was fantastic. You've got some great performances in this film you've got eddie marsan as a despicable trash newspaper editor you've got charlie hunnam as mickey pearson's ocd right hand man you got michelle dockery as pearson's equally as vicious and criminal wife that was a great performance and again you've got colin farrell who just gets dragged into a gang war basically a budding gang war at least it doesn't pull any of any punches with violence, swear words, and just roundabout general behavior. But if you can get past it, it's a love letter 
to the Tarantino Guy Ritchie kind of filmmaking. Oh, yeah, it reminded me very much of Tarantino in a lot of spots. The script, yeah. the dialogue especially. It's a very interesting film for Guy Ritchie to release right after Aladdin. That's That was a very in- interesting pivot in my eyes. But I could see... And also, the phonetic editing is just brilliant. It, it You never get shown something that isn't absolutely necessary for the character. It has so yeah. much style. Oh, yeah. And I I could say the same for Guns Akimbo. It's, they're so stylish. They're the kinds of movies that I love to watch because you get swept up in the rhythm of everything. So another, this time, TV show we watched was the first couple episodes of 2020's Australian The Marxist Singer. Oh, God. Which yeah. is a competition uh, where it was doing masks before it was cool that's the joke that they Thank repeatedly you. say <laughs> uh, every every as if time i haven't heard that enough every time osher ginsburg says a joke like that you can see a little part of his spirit just fade into the ether <laughs> yeah so because he knows that he's better than this so i believe we also talked about this the first time it was yeah you did like going? early yeah. on in the thing you talked about the the first season yeah so just to reiterate this is a singing competition uh, based on the i believe korean show uh king of the masked singer (laughs) why didn't they keep that title king of the masked singer is such a great just weird title because it's a literal translation into english and it doesn't literally translate properly it's it's not it's not that it's actually in korean king of the masked singer and sounding as strange as it does to us in english it's just that the literal translation of it is that the english language keep that literal translation that gives it such an energy the, the the english language fails to appreciate the nuances right during translation there's a there's been some operational changes yeah this season you don't say so Instead of having an a in-person audience that they've had had in the first season, this time the audience is full of people in costumes and masks. Oh, which that is makes my head hurt. Hilarious. It's a nightmare circus sideshow. It's both the masked singer and masked listener. And it's all cut co- like all crew right. members. So, so are they, a- is, is it like homemade costumes or are they being providing no, no. professional ones? Professional no, ones. No, like professional costumes, it's people... Who are working on the show? It's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yeah, but the judges so like the, the that scene God. at the end of Rise of Skywalker when they're all up in the balconies, like cheering. <laughs> Actually, kind of, kind of, kind of, bit. except except Not as more vast. terrifying. Um, uh, more strange bears and crocodile men. These very just. Actually, very creepy-looking gingerbread men. Yes, I, I don't like that. I don't know. I might have liked Rise of Skywalker more if there were creepy gingerbread men in it. The gumdrop button! Everyone takes off their hoods. It's just every single Gungan in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> Misa. Yeah. Uh, so, the I have to say, the costumes on the show for the performers mm. are stellar. There's the puppet which is chills oh, me to the bone that's fucked i hate it so hate much it. but it's well done mm. i believe the puppet is sam dastiari yes that's my guess and i'll stick with it until Proven we otherwise. rip that puppet's head off yeah there's the wizard 
who looks really, really cool. He's got these glowing oh, yeah. eyes. It's the Bush Ranger. The Bush Ranger is great. It's like it's like Ned Kelly went to Mardi Gras. <laughs> yeah, covering glitter. It's I really like this show because I like the guessing game of it. I like the yeah. you have to interrogate your own knowledge about B and C list Australian celebrities. Yeah, you're not getting good. Uh, no. You're not getting the A list. Oh here. yeah, yeah. They've actually- Celebrity is in quotation marks. Yeah. yeah, there was a news story that came out earlier this week, and it was talking about how they actually had to like knock a few big stars back because they can't sing. Wasn't wasn't there some? If if the person can't carry a tune, wasn't, wasn't there some the news is... story in the first season where one of them got unmasked and one of the judges didn't even know who they were? Yep. Yeah, and Lindsay Lohan was one of the judges and was like, "I don't know who that I is." I don't blame her. She probably knows who yeah. more of them than more of them are than I do. The first two people who got I can't even remember their names. The first was who was in the what was the costume? Um when they were a wolf. That, that was, was last, last season. Um but yeah. Anyway, you can look up it's, who the people were. This is a just a fun show. Yeah, but whenever one of the judges is like, I guess Hugh Jackman. Russell Crowe. It's like, like, you're not getting Hugh Jackman. Why would you ever think in a million years that they would say yes to this? I get it. It's a fun premise, but the money you would have to spend to get them is not worth it. So the first first year was Cody Simpson. Don't know who that is. Rob Mills. Heard of him. Can't quite place him. Gorgie Coughlin. Don't know who that is. Denny Hines. Don't know who that is. Paulini. Don't know who that is. Kate Sobrano. I do know who that is. Adam Brand. I do know who that is. Darren McMullen, don't know who that is. Wendell Saylor, don't know who that is. Nikki Webster, which is a name I haven't heard in many, many years. <laughs> I do know who that is. Brett Lee, don't know who that is. Greta Colleen, I do know who that is. What I find interesting is, like, the ones that made it closest to the end are the ones I don't know who they are. So yeah. maybe that's Denny because Hines that no one was guessing them because they don't know who the hell they are. Yeah. Like, with... It's just a fun detective show. You get to interrogate your knowledge of... Yeah. Some real deep cuts yeah. that you really wouldn't consider. It You're not getting A-listers, and they've got to stick to Australian residents. Yeah, because, now, because of obvious of, reasons. You know, the pandemic. Although, I did have the fun idea that maybe it's just a, a one of the cast crew members in the outfit, and they're actually just beaming the live audio from another country. But that'd be so much bullshit. Nikki Webster, Nikki Webster hasn't even released an album since 2004. Why would anyone think to guess her in 2019? We actually did. Yeah. We actually did. <laughs> Our mum guessed her. Because there were clues. Because they, they give you clues about present. who the person is. It's not just going from the voice, because that would be impossible i know because when it was kate sobrano i guessed so many other people hmm. no but it's a fun and fun i show. know kate sobrano's voice yeah i i just get a real kick out of the choreography the musical performances yeah. the costuming yeah. it's just a whole lot of fun it's an easy show to watch on a monday and a tuesday night yeah oh god they show it twice so- a week yeah, yeah, they oh, burn they, through. They it have quick. to burn through it because they need to keep up the secrecy. And the longer it goes on, the more chances there are that something slips. Yeah. So they burn through two episodes a week. Um, I think they. I would love if they. It's did all more. been recorded already, yeah. so you have to consider that.
So welcome to our tiny, tiny segment, Save Me From Smallville, where John and I go through what we consider frankly terrifying in our watch-through of Smallville. So this week, we have watched episodes 10, 11, 13, episodes 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. Episode 10 has an invisible villain. Invisible people freak me out. It has creepy vandalism, an attack of, on a woman who's in the bath, and a shrine built to Lex Luthor, which is just... Ugh. Episode 11 has a man who can compel you to do anything. In the first scene, he compels someone to commit suicide by jumping out of a window. Episode 13, there was nothing particularly scary in 12. There's a lot of parallels to drug pushing. Uh, the very predatory sort of getting people at their lowest stuff. These villains can walk through walls. Mm. So one of them has had their arm trapped in a wall and just has no arm anymore. Not just in a wall, in the door to a bank vault. Yeah. There is a lot of the, as the 1966 Adam West Batman would say, the allure of the loose and easy life. <laughs> There's also a scary meat packing plant with meat hooks. Yeah. And the predatory way that one of the bad guys says the word fun. Fun. Come on! It'll be fun! Uh, episode 14, which is the deal, which deals with a lot of bullshit in Lex Luthor's past. There's a detached hand someone leaves for Lex Luthor. And a entire field of dead cows. This is a Superman show, guys. Come on. Now we're going to give you the trailer for you to listen to for Gattaca. Genetics. What can it mean? The ability to perfect the physical and mental characteristics of every unborn child. In the not-too-distant future, our DNA will determine everything about us. A minute drop of blood saliva or a single hair determines where you can work who you should marry what you're capable of achieving in a society where success is determined by science divided by the standards of perfection one man's only chance... How do you expect to pull this off? I don't know exactly. ...is to hide his own identity. This is the last day that you're going to be you and I'm going to be me. ...by borrowing someone else's. Congratulations. What about the interview? That was it. Do you think you'd be doing what you're doing if it wasn't for who you are, what you are? I have a feeling you might be there under false pretenses, playing somebody else's hand. They've got my picture plastered up all over the place. They'll recognize me. They won't recognize me. They'll recognize me. I don't recognize you. They won't believe that one of their elite could have suckered them all this time. They are going to find me. But in a place where any cell from any part of your body can betray you, how do you hide? When we all shed 500 million cells a day. 
Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman. Welcome to Gattaca. That was the theatrical trailer for Gattaca. It is a science fiction drama movie directed by Andrew Nicole. It is set in the near future when eugenics have allowed parents to weed out undesirable genetic traits from their children before birth, leading to a world of people with perfect health, high intelligence and profound ability. Some choose not to go through that process, and the babies born with the usual imperfections are referred to as invalids. They've become the lowest rung on an unofficial caste system, unable to acquire decent jobs and generally treated as inferior specimens. One such person is Vincent, who is played by Ethan Hawke. He dreams of being an astronaut, but he has a heart condition that leaves his life expectancy at only 32. To achieve his dream, he enters into a financial agreement with a genetically engineered man named Jerome, played by Jude Law, who has recently been paralysed and confined to a wheelchair, and they work out an arrangement where he pays for Jerome's continued, you know, living the high life, and he gets to use Jerome's identity to infiltrate the astronaut program at a corporation called Gattaca. But when a higher-up employee is murdered there, though, a police investigation threatens to reveal his true identity just days before he heads out into space. So why don't we all go around just at the top here and say what we each thought of this. Why don't you start us off, Sean? What did you think of Gattaca? This wasn't what I was expecting. I wasn't expecting what is essentially a noir film in many ways. I, I did enjoy this. I love how the first segment keeps you guessing as to why does he have bags full of piss like in his <laughs> fridge that's kind of weird is this what the future of goon bags is no it's but, the present but, of goon bags yeah but then it's <laughs> funny but then it gives you that explanation and that entire opening segment with the explanation why he's got bags of blood why he does this weird Patrick Bateman routine in the yeah, morning. Why, why he Patrick Batemans? All of this stuff. It's it's fascinating. It doesn't tell you things outright. It lets you. It keeps you guessing. It lets it's you stew in the uncertainty. It lets you stew in the uncertainty. At yeah, the start. it's a very smart film with some very good performances, specifically from Ethan Hawke and Jude Law, who at first they don't like each other, but you see them becoming brothers essentially by the end i really liked it it like john said it's not what i expected at the beginning i got a real sense of a like an equilibrium sort of setup but this is much more calm densely plotted it's a much more intellectual film much much more intellectual it's a like you said it's a sci-fi drama with you know it's i said at the top it's a sci-fi thriller it has those elements but it's mainly about human relationships and interactions, about what the caste system can do. To it people. has a it has a much more sedate pacing than a th- than you would expect a thriller yeah. to have. I think. Although yeah. I would have loved to see some gun carters. That would have been cool. I'm going to complete the triptych here. This isn't what I expected it to be either. It's elegant and contemplative, with a great idea and 
terrific execution. I think it's thoughtful and it's surprising with some really fantastic production bona fides. It looks brilliant. Although in one of the early scenes, everything's yellow and I'm like, why is everything piss colored? Is this deus ex human revolution? What's happening? It, it's, it has this deeply emotional core as well and a valuable perspective, I think, on humanity and all of its in perfect glory. Just to start us out, I have a question for you too. I've heard this described as a dystopic movie, as this being a dystopia. And I want to ask you, is this a dystopia that this world depicts? Because I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't think that it is. I think it's, it's depicting a world with a very unfair caste system, a class system, but that's not all that dissimilar to the world that we live in now. I think when you brush up against the term like dystopia, it has a lot of baggage to it. You are given 1984 as the prime example of a dystopia. You've got equilibrium, you've got Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. No one's being forced to kill each other in like annual games (laughs) in, in Gattaca. Dystopia is a term with a lot of baggage on it and this for me is a form of dystopia where choice has been taken away from people the parents have been able to choose certain things about the children and the children have been left to just exist with that for the rest of their lives i think dystopia we have to look at the term on a sliding scale you've got at the far end of it your 1984's equilibrium and fahrenheit while This is a much softer dystopia. It's got dystopic elements, but it's not completely there. I feel like the real world is more of a dystopia than the Gattaca world is. I mean, you've got you've got this class system, right? Which is is what we got today. It's basically like you you know all of the the stuff to do with poverty and with race and with homophobia and things like that. It's it's all of that stuff, but now it's genetics. Now it's these people who haven't had all of the problematic genes weeded out of them. So that creates, you know, that that new lower set of of people within the social structure that the majority don't care to think about very often. But that's not all of that different to how things are now. And when you think about the improvements to the world of Gattaca, that they have all of this medical technology that they appear to have figured out, you know, global warming problems and and things like that. Like, it appears in a way to be almost more peaceful and serene a world to exist in than the one we do now. By that, we rub up up against the eugenics of it. And is that worth it? I would say no. Because if our world was like Gattaca, I wouldn't exist and... I assume neither would I, any of us here. Yeah, like, and and that's the thing. Originally, in the final scene where they had that shot of the stars, they were going to have text fed up on screen, and they were going to start listing all of the different famous people in the world that we wouldn't have gotten if the world of Gattaca existed. That we wouldn't have gotten someone like you know Albert Einstein, for example. That there are all of these people who have contributed so much to the world that because they had, uh, you know, these these certain disabilities or or medical issues or whatever that these these things in Gattaca would have weeded out that we would would never have gotten them but I do think it's sort of 
it, it is interested in having that kind of conversation about genetics and eugenics. I, I think it's interesting to point out that this is a movie that's coming out right around the time that you got that Dolly the Sheep clone. Yeah. And everyone was freaking out about that. And that all seemed at the time to be a lot more of an immediate issue, like everyone was going to be cloned in 20 years. Well, no one's really talking about clones anymore, you know. Yeah. Dolly's long dead. I'm not sure there are that many, you know. It's just not really a live issue in the way that people seem to think that it was. But it is also because we already have... I mean, the word eugenics comes with a whole bunch of stuff attached to it, especially from, you know, the Nazi regime and things like that. The whole, you know, master race crap that they were trying to push. But we already have forms of eugenics that are that are entrenched in, you know, the prenatal care system, that we do those early scans to look for problems with pregnancies and things like that, that, that we, you know, there, there, are, there are choices that are made that are nowhere near to the level and the extremity of what's going on in the world of Gattaca, but they are the first steps on that path. Yeah, and there's also the concept of dog breeding as well, hmm. and the fact we have designed dogs to a science Yeah, at this point. I, I did an assignment on dogs um, a, a couple of years ago for, for a university project. It's fascinating to see just how few dog breeds there were even just a couple hundred years ago because we have specifically made a lot of these dog breeds that are now commonplace for their for their looks for their personalities because you know back in the day dogs were working animals you know we used them for a purpose now they're companions and so we've wanted to you know customize the color customize the personality the temperament which is interesting because you've got that whole scene in at the beginning, where it's his parents talking to the guy at what is essentially like a car rental place, and it's like, so we can give you these benefits, and I'm just sitting here like, so are these are these like optional add-ons? Do do we have to pay a little bit more for like musical ability? Do we get a warranty on the child? But well, I guess that's life insurance. Do we get? Given like a bottle of champagne after we put down like the first down payment, the down payment. But even like like the guy who's doing this, um, I think it's Blair Underwood is the actor, is an African American actor, and so you get, and it's never called out by the script, but you get that very loaded moment where he's reading off. Okay, so you would like, you know, a white child. And, you know, he's, he's reading out these things, which that's a very loaded term. And again, especially because of the, the way that eugenics has so much of that whole, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed rubbish attached to it, the Aryan thing. But it, it is sort of interesting in, in it, it's not something that we like to really think about or to question the, the moral implications about. We, we sort of just put it off because we haven't quite got there. And this was always sort of a, of a thing. There was a period of time in the early 20th century in America where there was a whole lot of mentally disabled people who were being forcibly sterilized by the government. That was government practice in America that, you know, to prevent those disabilities from continuing into the next generation of people, that people who had those kinds of, of mental disorders would be sterilized to prevent them from having children. 
So there's there's this very complicated history that we've sort of gotten to the point now where we all agree that it's wrong. But then there's also this other stuff creeping around the edges, like, well, what if, you know, the kid has a really problematic, you know, physical disorder that could really hurt their quality of life? Is it okay if we weed that out? As opposed to then when you, you, you talk about other stuff, you talk about, you know, personality stuff which affects worldviews which affects you know the type of person that the child would be stuff like autism you know is autism something that's okay to weed out i would argue that it isn't so it's just this thing that we're not having the conversation about at the moment because the technology isn't there yet and so we're free to ignore it but it's coming and that's what this movie is is positing like what's the world going to look like once it's here and there's a lot to be said about how people in the Western world, particularly America, view the concept of eugenics. Like yeah. you said, there's a lot associated with the the Nazis and those sorts of forces, but it, eugenics was primarily a American concept. It was born in America. The concept of eugenics was born in America. If you just look at you know something like even even in australia we we had it as well this is this is an all over thing like the idea of the white australia policy or you know the the placing of aboriginal children with white families it was stolen generation yeah it was it was termed i think my history teacher termed it i don't know if, i think this was an official term but it was well, well an, an academic term but the gentle genocide the idea that eventually through keeping through the white Australia policy, which prevented immigrants of colour for many, many decades, and through the policies that they were using to to monitor and to control the Aboriginal community, that the, the ideal that the Australian government was working towards in the first half of the 20th century was a white Australia, an Australia where blackness would be bred out over the course of generations. That is eugenics. It isn't science. It isn't eugenics in in the test tube like we're talking about here, but it is still the kind of of long term. It, it is is very it's an Aryan concept. It's genocide, basically. It's social engineering. Yeah, that's that's a very good term for it. Yes, it looks like they've also done elements of that in Gattaca. They're not. There are moments over the course of the police investigation side of things that we see how the invalids which is a play on the term invalid how they are pretty much looked at as the only people who commit crime the only people who are even capable of it and which is shown to be very much inaccurate and that's the thing is you you get that stuff at the beginning you get that stuff later on when the guy at, at gattaca is talking to the police that there is Apparently, they, they're modifying the genes to make people nonviolent, which turns out to be very wrong because it is a genetically engineered person that commits the murder in, in the film. And of course, brutal murder, too. And we later get the the scene at the very end when the doctor is talking to him after he discovers that Vincent is the invalid, that he seems to indicate just through his dialogue that you know, his son has gone through all this genetically engineering process and it's not 100%, you know, all of this stuff that they promise when they do it. It's not how it turns out. That's, he, he says as much. I never did tell you about my son, did I? He's a big fan of yours. He wants to apply here. 
Unfortunately, my son's not all that they promised. But then who knows what he could do. And we see as much throughout the film as well. So there's all this stuff around around the edge of the film that's kind of arguing that, you know, you can do this all you want, but, but humans are messy people. You're never going to be able to, you know, perfect human beings into a factory line product. Yeah, life you know? happens. Yes. That's the thing. Like, it's, it's the whole thing from Jurassic Park. Like, life uh, finds a way. People will find a way to do crimes. Like, you can't engineer viciousness out of someone. And, and you, here... can't, you can't get rid of a situation where someone is so under the pump that they'll lash out with violence. Well, sure, but you, you can alter chemical construction in the brain and things, presumably in the world of this movie, that, you know, prevents the kind of chemicals and, you know, brain waves and things that contribute to that from turning up as often yeah here's the thing that got me there's a twist near the end where we find out that the the younger cop who's been pretty much trying to chase down the invalid vincent is actually his brother which i picked very early on i did i did not i just saw the young cop and i was like eh he's just kind of a shit bird forgot his face almost the second that he left the screen i i I thought it actually was pretty obvious because he immediately starts trying to as soon as he sees the photo come up on the screen he starts trying to direct the investigation away from gattaca remember there's that scene where they're running through all of the different fibers and things that they pick up in the in the the thing and he's there and so when they run the eyelash and vincent's face pops up he sees it and we get that long reaction shot of him which at the time we're starting to where we are still thinking that this is just you know a police detective but then immediately after that he's like going on about how oh i think he's why would he still be staying here let's go look over this oh he keeps trying to move it away from the building because he knows just a bigot uh, but then you get all the other stuff like, oh, Alan Arkin wants to run the family history. He's like, oh, I already did that. All of his family are dead. Like, there's all this very convenient stuff there that I picked pretty early on. That Because also it was like, well, clearly I just thought something's up with this guy. And then I thought, well, the only character that has the propensity to come back here is the brother. So there you go. And the brother has an inferiority complex. Yeah. Due to the fact that, one... His brother finally beat him in the swimming contest, and two, which is so irresponsible. And I have two, to say, Vincent is much smarter than he should have been. Yeah, and that's the whole thing about the movie is that for all of this genetic engineering, all this stuff that that Vincent is supposed to have going against him, he still manages to do all this stuff. He's still like the perfect employee at Gattaca. Like he accomplishes all of his tasks to perfection he's he still beats the swim thing he he manages to pull off this harebrained scheme in the first place i mean there is just a level of you know it it is disproving through the very premise of the film the idea that success and passion and intelligence and ability is something that can even be controlled in such a way that it comes like not to quote the the terrible terrible tagline for this movie but there is no gene for the human spirit (laughs) oh god that's like something you'd see on a bloody bumper sticker bumper sticker or some sort of 
Hallmark movie about scientists falling in love. It's a it's it's the bumper sticker that exists right next to the coexist one. <laughs> and and right next to a Jesus fish. The thing is, the brother's behavioral issue with the inferiority complex, that's not something that can be controlled genetically. That's created by experience. Yeah. That's that's environment. Environment takes a massive part in the creation of a person. Espe- it- especially the content of behavioral patterns, not necessarily the presence of certain behavioral patterns. It's a very humanist film. Yeah. But you also, through Jerome, you get the opposite of Vincent, where Vincent is a guy who's had to work for everything, whereas Jerome has just had all this stuff programmed into him from before birth. And now that he's lost it all, he doesn't have any... All his identity is gone, because his whole identity was constructed in a test tube. All of this stuff that he was supposed to be, that he was supposed to have this this perfect score on all of this DNA genetics crap that they do the moment after you're born. They, they predict how many years you'll live and your propensity for certain illnesses and, and things like that. And he gets a silver medal. He, he, gets a, he still gets a silver medal. He still doesn't win in the Olympics. And then he can't he, even kill himself. Yeah. And then, well, that's not, I don't believe, yeah, that's that's interesting, because we can get into that later as to whether his disablement is the result of a suicide attempt or not. No, I no, think it's explicitly... he explicitly says that he stepped out in front yeah. of traffic. He said he was He said he was sober at the time, but he never explicitly says, says that he intended to step in front of traffic. I, I, it's, I think, I it's think that was the implication. I, yeah, I definitely think that there's an implication there. But, like... He he just doesn't know how to contend with the idea that he isn't as that he isn't genetically perfect that he thought that he was and he isn't and now he's stuck in a wheelchair and that just creates even more problems for him because that's not how the world the world is so unaccepting of of disability now as well. Like there was that scene where he's talking to that security guard and the security guard fully believes he's an invalid, which. The term just really started bothering me. Oh, yeah. How it was used in the movie. It was used deliberately oh, yeah. to make you uncomfortable, as well as the other slurs created for it. Like, they even have different levels of how it's referred. There's, like, true birth. Faith birth. Faith birth is one of the things, which is a much softer slur. Oh, yeah, there's one that's um, godchild. Yeah. If, if someone called me a godchild, that would just make me feel happy. I'd be like, oh, thanks. <laughs> like, don't believe in him, but that's... I appreciate the and emotion you put behind The that. scene was so precisely done that the first thing coming out of the real Jerome's mouth, mm. Drew Law, is, how dare you? I work for Gattaca. I was in a training accident. I have an injured leg. Navigator at Gattaca. That's what it says, doesn't it? It doesn't say you're crippled. I'm not crippled. I hurt my leg training, you moron. How dare you question me? You're right. What's your number? Alright, forget it. No, what's your number, you fucking flatfoot? Look, I said forget it. What do you want? An apology? Oh, it gets to you, doesn't it? It gets to you that I can do what you can only dream of. I'm getting off this ball of dirt. How dare you question me? That's harassment. My mistake. 
What's your number? What's your number? He comes across the discrimination and ableism that actually occurs to invalids. Yeah. It, it, it is a great arc, relationship arc between him and Vincent. Yeah. The way that he, like, I, I one of the tensest moments, the, one of the most thrillery moments that it gets is when the detective who we will later learn is the brother is coming to investigate his his house and of course vincent's assumed jerome's identity there's this sort of cover-up of jerome's home today so vincent basically jerome has to pretend to be the jerome that works at gattaca and so he has to throw himself out of his wheelchair and crawl up a set of stairs on his just using his arms and situate himself into a chair so that he can pretend that he is the guy that that walks on two feet into Gattaca every day that's the development of that character relationship where you you get to the point where like no he is he is as invested in Vincent succeeding now as Vincent is even the point that before at the end when he he does finally take his own life that he leaves a lifetime supply of urine and blood (laughs) which is the shittiest contest prize (laughs) It's like, here, what's behind freezer door number one? It's my piss and my blood. It's like, congratulations. For being such a great friend, here is a collection of two lifetimes worth of my bodily... It's like, it's like how how did I produce this amount? A lot I of juice. Lot. I gave myself some pretty nasty evenings. <laughs> you know, we, we talked about last week that whole idea of, you know, the, the mimic thing of, well... Make sure you don't have that wall of of photographs because it really looks like you're a serial killer if the police investigate. Oh, well, yeah. if the police ever have to search Vincent's apartment and he's just got this secret room full of just gallons and gallons of, of blood and urine. It's like, I'm a performance artist. No, no, no. We bred that out. Shit. We don't have artists anymore. It's like, shit. I know they do because they got that 12-fingered piano player. Who is designed to have... Yeah, because there's specific pieces now that can only be played with the extra two fingers. Although but, I but do love the idea that... I would that... hesitate to call... Because there's an element of chaos in the creation of art. As precise as you want it to be, when you remove all of the chance out of the creation of a piece, of music, of visual art, of scripting, well, of I mean, writing... It's... Just let me finish. You remove... You make it mechanical. Well, I mean, it's not... You like make the... it... A, you make it programmed. Well, I mean, it's not like the guy is literally a robot. It's like, he is a piano player. He's an artist. He wrote that piece, but he's just using the twelve fingers. He's got no. What I'm saying is, it's the social engineering element. They've tried to get even art down to us. Sure, but again, it's working with the thesis of the film that you, again, to use the bloody tagline this but bloody tagline you can't engineer the spirit no there is no gene for the human spirit oh yeah because mine was so much better <laughs> but anyway it's like the person still probably sat down and is like oh that sounds nice i'm gonna use me extra i'm gonna use me extra digits really give this piece of music a little bit of all right you know what i'm getting at i though. know what you're getting at but i disagree that that's exactly what is happening it goes into this whole thing of the world feels very sterile. 
intentionally yes. so. It feels feels very designed and planned and clean and rigid, which I, I would like to talk a bit about the world and the way that the world is just visually depicted, the design of it, because I think it's a really great I, a great idea that it's not some huge jump in design and technology. We're not talking about, you know, Blade Runner or Star Trek, where things are just totally unrecognisable from the way that we see things now. It's just that things are... It looks like a high-tech city, basically. It looks like a very... Everyone lives in South Korea now. Yeah. But it it looks like it was, you know, planned from the beginning that, like, again, in keeping in with that that whole, you know, genetics, eugenics thing, it, it carries over into the design of the the area where it looks like a really planned city. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah, yeah. it looks like, you know, someone down at, at the city council really went and drew a blueprint and made sure that all of the different, you know, suburbs and streets were all, you know, mapped out as as clearly and perfectly as possible and all of the buildings kind of have a similar high-tech modernist sheen to them a guy down at the city planning office with healthy smatterings of both add and ocd but it helps well no because presumably those are all gone (laughs) i feel like this world would actually like a bunch of people with at least mild ocd but you get all, all of that stuff where it, it just, it looks, we've all seen buildings like that, yes. you know? They're not buildings that don't exist. They're not buildings that look like, you know, from, it isn't Blade Runner with the floating cars and the smog-filled streets and all of the neon everywhere. It, it isn't Star Trek with everyone wearing pajamas all of the time and, and walking around like that. It, it just looks like an upper-class it looks like like if you if someone told you that you know I reckon that's what the world will look like fifty years from today, you'd be like, yeah, that seems pretty reasonable. The cars still go around. The cars still go around on wheels. They're just I mean, electric car now. Vo- car goes boom. Door goes. Eh. I yeah. mean, it's it's not it's, like everything's gone weird. It's the two minutes into the future thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not so far removed. It just has that one element that's different. Although I would have loved if the cops had laid. That would have been fun. That would have been fun. You just go pew pew. You see a weird flying car at one point. <laughs> I do like um. I do like just they've done little things like the bit that I really love visually is in the tunnel when they're going when he when Vincent and Uma Thurman are, are on the the days and it has all of that that green glow to it because the lights the 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 breaking lights on the back of the cars are green now they're not uh, sorry text message why is it minions though i want you to explain that to me oh <laughs> uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time <laughs> and why haven't you changed it then a, a lot of uh, new ideas seem good at the time <laughs> this is a lack of forethought <laughs> matt if you're listening to this that was that was your fault for texting me during the recording of the podcast but yeah we're gonna put you on blast why is it minions did you choose it no no it was all me it was all me well okay then you're to blame oh yeah i i'm to blame for a lot of things <laughs> well, just think about it in the world of Gattaca, there'd be no me i've i've okay i've just on. been been notified that bill shorten has had the very the the hip lingo alert here of bill shorten on insiders saying or fundamentally, if I can put it in really plain English, Mr. Morrison needs to make sure that he doesn't look like he's just a simp 
to Donald Trump on this very important issue. No! What? <laughs> Bullshit! He didn't! Oh, you moron. A grown adult used the term simp! Not only a grown, yeah. This is this is a, a, a divergent thing here. Remember remember the the You okay, Harley? He's crying. <laughs> it was it was during the election I think he described coalition supporters or, or members of the coalition base that they were that they were, that he was saying that they were playing to as the assorted denizens of the space cantina from Star Wars. <laughs> and he said that in an interview on the ABC. Oh, come on. You can't even nerd right. Call it the Mos Eisley Cantina. Anyways, we've gotten off topic. Anyway. Thank, thanks, Matt, for, for dragging us to a halt there. Well, really, we could have just moved right past that if you hadn't decided to call out the minions of it all, Sean. But hold on, hold on. We're anyway, all hey, Matt, you're my MVP. <laughs> <laughs> you're my MVP for this one, bud. <laughs> What was what was I even saying? Oh right, that they're in the tunnel and they have that green glow because now the like that one of the little changes is that the stoplights on cars, the braking lights, are not red anymore; they're green, and so it gives it this sort of weird ethereal look to it when they're in the the tunnel and they're driving back. And then of course you have it all backlit and there's all the lighting, it, and it looks kind of weird and dreamlike and spacey, but. It's just beautiful cinematography all the way through. A, a guy named Slowomir Idziak. And the production design too is great by Jan Rolfs. Just to call those two out because I think they did a really great job. Because it feels like a consistent lived-in world that exists beyond what we're seeing in the frame, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It looks precise, but not too much like a museum. Yeah. yeah. That it looks it, just it, real enough. It's just real enough. I am confused by the changing of like brake lights from red to green. That doesn't make any just sense. Just stylistic, I think. <laughs> because green means go. It like means go. Anyway, I think they just want to have I think some insurance guy in this future has just been really savvy and is like more car crashes. <laughs> Someone's socially engineered to basically be a living vampire. Well, and let's touch on on the relationship between Vincent and the Uma Thurman character, who is Irene. She's a co-worker. She is genetically engineered, but it's not been all the way successful, and she has a heart defect of her own. So, albeit a less severe one than Vincent's, and it's the only blemish on her otherwise spotless genetically engineered DNA reader, which, by the way, was maybe the freakiest part of that whole movie, that you could take a DNA sample you got from, like, a coffee cup from a date and go and check out, like, their whole genetic history and see how long they were going to live for and things like that. And it's just like this fast food takeaway DNA test. You know that would be added to people's tenders. That the privacy laws of that are just, you can walk in off the street with a strand of hair and get it tested in 30 seconds. But... Through her, we see how the class system has shifted. She is, by modern standards, by by our current standards, you, you know, she's Uma Thurman. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Like, nobody would be calling her genetically inferior. But the fact that she is even the slightest bit... Not what the doctor ordered. Not what the doctor ordered. She's, she's treated like less of a person 
from the people at Gattaca. And like you, you get her her boss, who's played by Gore Vidal. Are you familiar with Gore Vidal? Vaguely. Around the place. He he was an American intellectual. He wasn't an actor. He he was a, a political commentator, an academic writer. He was openly bisexual in a time that that was really not a thing that you were treated well for being openly. Before I find out what this guy is, like what his vibe is, I just want to say Slay King. He, he wrote books that often dealt with LGBT characters. Like he's very much into, he was, he's passed away now, but he's very much into social satire and how society works and he's very left-wing as well there he did a very famous series of debates with a conservative intellectual named william f buckley uh on the eve of the 1968 democratic chicago and republican conventions where basically he i you can probably find audio of this online but they did a whole documentary about it because they just turned into these really bitter rivals and ended with him calling buckley a I, I believe something approaching a, a neo-Nazi was, I think. And then Buckley called him a gay slur on live television. As far as I'm concerned, the only sort of pro or crypto-Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. Uh, Failing that, let's, I would only let's say that we names. can't have now listen, you the right of the Stop calling chair. me a crypto-Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling I'll names you and let's your get... goddamn face. And you'll stay plastered. So it, it was... It's, it's, kind of infamous, like they did a whole documentary of it called Best of Enemies. But anyways, Gore Vidal is like, he's not an actor. I think you can see it in his performance that he's not an actor, but he's done a few acting roles. He's done this. He did a political film I talked about some months ago called Bob Roberts. When he's used, he's used for the baggage that he brings from his real life persona. And I think that that's really interesting. That sort of, it tells you a lot about this movie's point of view, that Gore Vidal is the one that's playing this, you know, patrician head of the head of the the project at Gattaca, and of course ends up to be, you know, the best proof of all that this whole system isn't nearly as cracked up to be. That it's Gore Vidal, I think, is is meaningful metatextually away from the film that itself. There's actually a completed film that Netflix has sitting around in a vault somewhere called Gore that is about Gore Vidal's life. It's never going to come out because Gore Vidal was played by Kevin Spacey. And they completed it just before all of that stuff came out. Anyways, we got away from it. But but Gore Vidal's character, he treats Uma Thurman's character, you know, with, with a level of disdain because she's not perfect. She has this heart condition that hasn't been properly rooted out. When he tells her to be like the point woman between the police and Gattaca, because he's like, he doesn't view her as important to the functioning of the project that they're working on. And when she says, like, can you assure me that this won't affect my place in the queue to go into space? He's just like, he almost smirks at it, right? Like, yes, I can assure you that this won't affect your place in the queue. Like, you're not going to, the subtext of that is, you're not going to space, but we'd already decided that a long time ago. So even for as as, as genetically, you know, it's, it's Uma Thurman, come on. Yeah. But that that one little imperfection is what stops her from. Even she feels it in this new class system. I mean, I mean, we, we and we mentioned that whole like getting the genetic testing on you know potential dates or, or employees or whatever, and you get a rating out of ten as to how genetically perfect you are. 
Like it's 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 a real like that's the dystopian element of it is is this kind of score based system that the world has come to to rely on that it's data instead of ideas it's raw numbers instead of spirit that we value now in this movie oh yeah i just wanted to point out uh the cars that we were talking about earlier the cars that go boom are electric cars yeah which when i saw ethan hawk plug the car into the wall i was like oh great this is elon musk's wet dream fantastic it's And you get some of these other characters around the edges. You get Ernest Borgnine, who is another invalid, who is the head cleaner at Gattaca. Vincent starts out working on the cleaning crew before he gets this idea that he's going to take Jerome's identity and become a member of, of the proper staff. And you get a lot of stuff with Ernest Borgnine sort of telling him about, you know, just let it go. We're never going to be on the other side of the glass. And there's actually a deleted scene in... You get a brief remnant of it where Borgnine talks to him in the stairwell and takes the cup. I'll, I'll throw that into the trash for you, sir, that Ernest Borgnine says to him once he's assumed the identity of Jerome. But there's a deleted scene that made it absolutely 100% explicit that Ernest Borgnine knew full well that Jerome was Vincent undercover and was actually part of the reason Vincent was successful so long is because the cleaner was literally helping him clean you you get that kind of where there's there's people who are just not not altogether happy with the world. Like you get the Xander Berkeley character as the Doctor, who we'll find out at the end is has known all along. It is implied yeah. that Jerome is Vincent. Vincent is Jerome. Uh, you get that, which in retrospect, also you you don't even know at the time that he makes the joke. It becomes a joke in retrospect that when you have that first testing scene between him and the Doctor. The, the doctor spends so much time talking about how he wishes he has as good of a penis as Ethan Hawke does. Which, in retrospect, you find out this that's like everyone else is genetically modified except Ethan Hawke. That's, you know, God's own gift to women there. So... <laughs> I'm confused. Can you, can you ask... Can you pay just a little bit more to make that happen? Presumably. I mean, everyone's, you know... They, they even give you, like, a pair of fucking foam dice that you can hang look on at it. look at all of the genetically engineered people in the world they all look like attractive people you know there's there's and, and admittedly so does ethan hawk but that's more of a like that's an ethan hawk thing that's an that's a hollywood casting decision there but but there is everyone looks like a supermodel almost uh, you know physical perfection has extended not just in terms of ill health and sickness but in terms of looks as well so there that is part of it like they've also seemingly eradicated alcoholism Mm -hmm. maybe not eradicated well it's it's a it's eradicated addictive tendency it doesn't mean you can't get addicted alcohol still has the same effect on your body as it would if you didn't it's just like you know how some people are more prone to addiction than others yeah yeah i'm prone to addiction more more prone to addiction than others. I'm addicted to coffee. You know, I have a headache when I don't have a coffee in the morning. That's why I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't do drugs is because I know full well that I don't have the kind of of personality which would fare well with addictive substances. So presumably in, in this future world, that's been, that's been weeded out. But no, when Jude Law is still all he's got to do in a day is to sit and drink and feel sorry for himself. 
yeah. he still becomes an alcoholic. He's got to create that urine somehow, John. He's got to, you know, yeah. you, you, were, you were wondering how he made so much of it. You know, he's on the sauce all the time. That's how. It just goes right through no, him. No, but the, but the samples gained when he is drinking yeah, don't, it can't be used. aren't good enough. Yeah. So he's just drinking fuck loads of water. Like, I, I'm sure that he's got bloody... Oh, what's that stuff? Never mind. He probably drinks a lot of soft drinks. Like, a lot But of even that's a, that's a lot of sugar content that they might not dig. Yeah, fair enough. But you just got to think about... They can tell so much about every sample from the human body. What... What is the general diet? Well, obesity has been removed. They, they they said that. like, And presumably that just means everyone has a very high metabolism, that they can eat whatever they want, and their metabolic rate is high enough that they don't gain weight as a result of it. You think about that as well. Everyone in the movie is thin, even the extras. I, I love the weird, low-key, creepy supporting turn that Tony Shalhoub has oh, yeah. as the black market <laughs> practitioner who's been arranging for... That it's created this underground black market, this new reality that it, that connects invalids to people like Jerome who are willing to sell their identity and their privileges that they get as a result of their identity. You've got to know that that freak is going around, like, busting up ge- genetically engineered people to make this happen. <laughs> You've got to know that he's yeah. doing that to keep his supply up. And I imagine he's just like, imagine he sets people up and then some people are like, that's not how you look in your picture. But it's and, and and just the meticulousness of it. We haven't really talked about the process that Vincent goes through. That even beyond like finding someone who looks physically similar to him, stretching him out in like a like a torture rack yeah. almost oh, to make that him was, oh that was great. make him two no, inches like, taller. Uh, that wasn't him being stretched out. He got surgery to have added bone. Add bone. But what, Which, when when that was brought up, and it was like, oh, so how are we going to do that? I was like, just take him to the tap. I mean, it's... Young men who are extremely pliable at that I'm, age. I'm pretty sure that that's... You can already have that done. That you can already yep, have you yourself can. made taller. But... You can't. Yikes! It's a very... It's meant to be used for people who have lost bone to either illness or injury. To restore, you know, that sort of thing. But it can't be used as a... And he and so he has to do that. He has to wear contacts. He brings in all of the the skin flakes and hair that Jerome gives him, so that he can sort of litter it about his workplace at work. So that it, if anyone ha- ever tests it, it looks like the actual Jerome lives there when they they run the DNA test. And in the sprinkles it on his keyboard like he's putting salt on chips. I have to admit, though, looking at that, I'm like. That's pretty nasty, yeah. man. And yeah, yeah, in the nasty. in the mornings, he gets inside a, a incinerator in his kitchen, which is just big enough. It's like a like a dumb waiter almost. You can sit inside yeah. it hunched up and rubs himself with you know a rough brush to get all of the excess skin off of him, yeah. and then tortures it in the in- incinerator. And you get that scene later on where, for the first time, he reveals his true identity to Uma Thurman, and they have sex and he wakes up the next morning and he realizes that, you know, he's, he hasn't gone through his routine and he runs out naked yeah. into the ocean and starts rubbing himself with rocks. <laughs> Just has kind of a breakdown. Like, I imagine it's like, she wakes up, looks outside. It's like, what are you doing? It's like, I'm in an art film. He's rub- Is he rubbing himself with rocks? <laughs> but it's like, that's, that's not what you do. That, 
that just that just creates you know the propensity for open wounds what does he do if he gets a paper cut you know these are the questions like he's got to be very careful well here's the thing you can't have you know sensitive skin like i do in that world or else the jig is up like that just put yourself in an incinerator let's also talk a little bit about alan arkin's character because i was actually waiting for the reveal that he was an invalid yeah the same the cop yeah I actually thought that that was going to be somewhere that the movie was going on to where he wasn't pretending to be someone else, but he was like maybe the last of one of yeah. one of the last of a generation where it was still not uncommon to be not genetically engineered. And so he still has this job as a, as, as a result of it. But uh, at the same time, you know, here are all these younger guys that are coming up faster through the ranks than him that he still, he, he makes a, comment at one point doesn't he that he's that's why i'm just a just this sort of detective and you're this sort of detective when he's yeah. like almost twice the age of the younger man who's his superior and that's what i was waiting for and it never quite came but but i think that was like subtext yes yeah. well in the deleted scenes again there were some very interesting deleted scenes for this movie the fine we get another scene at the end with the brother where Alan Arkin confronts him is just like, you know, I figured it out, right? You know that I know you're his brother and I know who he is. And by the way, he, he sort of, he it doesn't outright say it, but it's very clearly implicated, but like, well, I guess we'll just leave this alone and I'll go up and get a promotion now, won't I? So all works out in the end. I like all of that stuff that everyone's just sort of, people aren't stupid, you know? People have figured it out. Xander Berkeley's doctors figured it out. The, you know, Ernest Borgnine knows that Alan Arkin in this deleted scene eventually figures it out. But also that that there's sort of this undercurrent from most of those people that no, this it it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter that he's not genetically engineered because he's still doing the right thing. Yeah, and there's also the fact that some people are just like an invalid impersonating one of us. <laughs> Impossible. That's the Gore Vidal thing. It's like, well, he could never dream that one of their elite is has been pulling the wool over their eyes, and and he that he that he makes the point to talk to old oh, Jerome. You're such a great employee. There's no mistakes and thousands of keystrokes. Well done, Jerome. You're one of our our best. You know, he never thinks for a second that that kind of perfection can be attained through actual effort. I just, with with that character, with Gore Vidal's character, I wish it was a little bit more obvious in retrospect that he was the one who killed that guy. I feel like that was sort of, that sort of came out of nowhere a little it, bit. It's a bit of an ass pull. Well, it's it's not a mystery. It's, it, the mystery is is a thing that is there to put the heat on Jerome and to introduce the police into the story. But the actual murder of this guy, we never even find out who the victim's name is. I mean, it's it's not something that the movie is really interested in. And to the point that it is interested in it, it's only really interested in it in making the most holier-than-thou, status-obsessed character in the whole movie end up being the one that's the killer. Yeah. Yeah. I do like... It's a vehicle added... for the commentary. Yeah. yeah. I do like the added thing where everyone talks about the guy who was murdered like, yeah, he was a complete arsehole. <laughs> yeah. No one liked him. You Did can't you do breed, it. You can't breed out being a piece of shit. The score, the musical score by Michael Nyman, is so beautiful. It is outstanding. I have some of it on my 
my phone now on Spotify. But that whole, like the, the motif at the end that plays over the finale, and I'd like to move on to the finale in a minute, the departure it's called, that plays during the final swim and during, you know, the final cutting between things. It really stood out to me how good that score was. How about you? For me, I'm big on leitmotifs when it comes to music. And if I can't pick out a leitmotif, I don't really... I think I was more swept up in the imagery of him going to space. And that sort of rising force of the music when Jerome's going in the incinerator, basically throwing himself in the bin. And with the... How basically it's 2001 A Space Odyssey, you can go to space in a suit and tie. Oh yeah, Nicole's directorial instincts are brilliant. This is his first film. I like the psychedelic sort of, you see these little like dots of light going around the cabin and all of that was very interesting. Although, when it got to the end, I was just sitting there thinking, what if he hates it in space? <laughs> what if he absolutely just hates it? Like, that would be such a waste. <laughs> that whole cutting to get, like the finale, that's such a strong ending. That's such a great place yeah, to leave the movie. Is. Execute so brilliantly on all of the themes. Like really from the, the the last race that he has with his brother, Anton, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Because his father wanted to name his son his after son him. After him, but not an invalid son. Yeah. So you get that last race between them, the swimming race in the middle of the night. Again, as that, that Michael Nyman score is going to... Da, 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 you know? And he beats Anton again, and Anton's like, how are you doing this? And he says, you know, that's the difference between you and me is I never saved... I never, I never left anything for the swim back. You know, he gave it everything that he had all the time, and that's the difference. I, I think that's a really beautiful sentiment, and yeah. It's it's a great again as we we talked about at the top this is such a humanist movie. It has great belief in the propensity of humans to do extraordinary yeah. things as imperfect and vulnerable as we are that whatever it is inside of us that allows us to potentially become incredible people, you know. Yeah. That's something that, that that there is there is no gene for. <laughs> Basically, yeah. So gene for the humans. You know, we ragged on that tagline, but it really does kind of sum up things, doesn't it? It does, like, yeah. It's true. It's just a bad tagline. <laughs> it, it, it's like, it's one of those things that is so obvious, it really doesn't need saying. It's like, you're right, but did you have to say it like that? Those scenes when they're doing the swimming contest really mess with me. You know my thalassophobia, fear of big open water where you can't touch the bottom you would catch me dead doing that shit and it's the middle of the night you can't see the land in either direction i got straight up scared watching that because at night at least during the day they could see around but in the dark there's just the vast i was just sitting there thinking how irresponsible i have that phobia too but it's not necessarily water it's more voids 
So it's like the ocean, but it's also like space and things like that. I don't dig on either. <laughs> it's too big. Yeah, it's too big. It's too big. I don't know what's out there. You cannot touch if, the bottom. You know, if if something goes wrong, it's just sort of it's too desolate and isolated and lonely. There's too yeah. much empty. It's like if you're alone out there, it's over. Which is interesting because you really like a lot of space. I do. Movies. Yeah. Well, I like a lot of horror movies too. So. See, see, it's the difference. It's not necessarily space, as in you know Star Trek and across the universe. It's yeah. it's the kind of the spacewalk thing. It's the gravity of it. You know, the gravity, of the movie, the idea that you're just out there drifting. What if you what if you became unmoored? You know. Did you know that in Gravity, there's like a frame of the movie that you can actually see, like in the re- reflected in one of the helmets, <laughs> like a. a, a camera crew and someone with a boom bike in space suits. Yes, they did that as like a little easter egg. That's that fun. is so genius. I appreciate the just brilliance of but, that. And that's the thing. They There's that comparison that it draws between the like you said, the swimming contest and life as well as going to space. Like Vincent never leaves anything in the tank. He just goes for it. Yeah. Is there anything else in particular you guys would like to touch on, or do you think that we're... Ooh, uh, yes. The scene where he's crossing the road. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just like, nah. No, but... I, I did like when they went to the that field of solar panels and everything, and I remember I said something. About like, Uma Thurman was like, it's so beautiful, isn't it? And I was like, it's like it'd be great if I could see. I was like, you know what? You're probably right. Anyways, before we leave off, why don't we just go around and say who our MVP was in this movie and who, what our favourite scene or sequence was. So I will start us off and I will say that I'm, I'm giving a triple tie for these MVPs to the just the technical people behind some of the major aspects of it that I really dug. So... For starters, I got to go with the score. I was really impressed with the score. So Michael Nyman, into the production design as well, Jan Rolfs, and the cinematographer Slawomir Idziak. So I just thought that the world that was created and the vibe that was created was just so brilliantly done. Uh, it yeah. was such a crucial part of the movie, and it created such a tone and atmosphere. So I'm giving it to the three of them. In terms of my favorite scene or sequence, it's the final swim. It's it's. I never leave anything for the swim back. That whole part of it, because I think it's such a great summation of the movie's whole theme and message. How about you? Yeah, I agree. I think my MVP would be Law because in that performance, he he again he follows the message of the movie. He doesn't leave anything in the tank. He goes to some very deep and introspective places, and I. I don't know, something about Jude Law- Law's voice, just, I love it when he speaks. He could read a phone book, to- and I could be happy about it. For me, the best part of the movie, again, was probably that explanation that we get for the reasons why he's got piss and blood in his freezer, why he uses a catheter, all of that stuff, all of that that explanation. Because I knew nothing about this movie going in, when I was given that explanation, I was like, Oh! Okay, that makes sense. There's a logic to it. Okay. And, yeah. So, my MVP 
like John, has to go to Jude Law. Because he really touches onto the emotion of everything. The physical performance is fantastic. He is just a compelling force whenever he's on screen. And he works very well with the other actors. Yeah. I can't give it to Ethan Hawke because it's a bit robotic. It's deliberate, but it's a bit stunted and stilted. Too much so for me to really latch on. My favorite scene would have to be the ending, I think. The scene where the Doctor is talking to him and he tells him he knows and he's always known. And just the line that he says is, right-handers don't hold it with their left. (laughs) I'm just sitting there thinking, bullshit, my lad. I was just sitting there going, for, for all of the time he spent learning to write with his right hand, learning to do Jerome's signature with his right hand, it's the small little detail <laughs> that he simply forgot. It's the small little detail holding his big detail. Like, that's kind of a weird thing Dr. Xander Berkeley like. That kind of like, you don't want that from a doctor, really. You don't want the doctor, you know, taking a peek at the peen while, <laughs> while he's on the job. <laughs> he's a little too focused <laughs> on it. it. It crosses a few ethical boundaries. Yeah. But Let's it's... just say, commenting and being like, hey, nice hog. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Okay, bud. It's just, I think it's more you know, like what I the come line... to you to tell me if this is a zit or a cyst. I don't want you to comment on my penis's length. It's not so much the line itself, but the what the line actually means is you can deliberately change so much, but the little things yeah. will still just pop through. The little things that exist laterally to Ethan Hunt's <laughs> You know what I mean, though? It's like yeah. the little details that you just forget about, that are just unmistakably you. Like, like Uma Thurman's character falls in love with Vincent. Yeah. Because he's Vincent. Because he can't help but behave like himself. Yeah. Like, his name may not be Jerome, but he's still being honest about his personal like feelings he's, and he's self. He's not really putting on a different personality. No. no, he's still him. He's just, like, wearing a different suit. Yeah. Also, I just wanted to say, when I when you told me we were watching Gattaca, I thought it was going to be a Stargate thing. <laughs> that's ex- That's what I that's thought what it was going to be. That's what I was thinking. I thought it was going to be Battlestar Galactica, Stargate, all of that kind I of stuff. I thought we were going to be, wasn't like... Expecting, I wasn't <laughs> expecting an art film. So, so did I, frankly. Like, this is one of the few movies I didn't know that much about. I was ex- I was expecting space marines fighting big roaches and on the moon. And- well, you'll be getting that you'll be getting that next week because we will be doing next week Starship Troopers, the 1997 satirical science fiction war film directed by Paul Verhoeven and based on the Robert Heinlein book of the same name. I saw this once before, uh, quite a while ago, when I was but an idiot teenager. And I didn't catch the satire. I didn't have the frame of reference to understand that it was actually poking fun. So I took it at face value and I didn't really care for it. So I'm very excited to have this discussion with you guys next week, coming at the movie from the proper angle this time. Did you know that Michael Nyman has a live album? I do, do not. Yeah, well, he does. Anyway, so 
You just can... a bunch oh, of music from the piano. Yeah, and right, if, if, you, if, if you would like to follow along at home, Starship Troopers is available for purchase or rental on the Apple Store. It, seemingly, nobody decided to pick it up on any of the streaming services. You can find us at our, each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy County. You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. You can find us at our Twitter. The link is accurate. Okay, when I used the link a few weeks ago, it sent me to a 404, so... Anyway, so all of that's still good. It's in the description wherever it appears on your podcast app of choice. So, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis. I have no genetic engineering in my body. I really don't want to take someone else's life. No, God, no, Jesus Christ. But mine if I could is, take Jude Law's... Why would you want you need to, to... Okay, That that's... removes Jude Law. That removes Jude Law from the equation. That that means... Don't, don't phrase you. it like, I don't want to take someone else's... Assume someone else's identity. That's what you're looking for. Yeah. Take someone else's life. Sounds like you want to kill Jude Law. You're not going to kill Jude Law. I'm a decent actor. I'm not that You're not Jude good. Law. You're not Jude Law. I know. Stop saying that.